Hi, I'm Carmen LeBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LeBurge on Faith Radio. Right into this second hour this morning. Uh, well, I guess I should start with a good morning. Good morning, and then let me start uh, right off because I got one headline that I want to cover before Dr. Brett Nix joins us from the Christian Medical and General Association. There's a story out of Berkeley that we absolutely need to consider this morning. Um, it is in the LA Times. The headline is UC Berkeley is disavowing its eugenic research fund after bioethicists and other faculty call it out. Um, Hard pause. Hard pause. Um, If you saw the word eugenic in an email, would you not be provoked to ask some questions? And if you saw that the word eugenic appeared in the name of a research fund, would you not ask a lot of questions? It is stunning to me that only one person, one person saw that and said to himself, hmm, that doesn't seem quite right. 2018 was the year. It was not the first time that the email had been sent. It was certainly not the first time the fund had been accessed by members of the UC Berkeley Berkeley faculty for research money. So UC Berkeley is disavowing its eugenic research fund. Wait, what? UC Berkeley has a eugenic research fund? What? UC Berkeley has eugenics research? What? In late 2018, UC Berkeley bioethics professor Osaji Obasagui yes, he is African, received a campus email about a research fund available to him as a faculty member in the School of Public Health. The, I don't know how to say the first word. I'm going to skip the first word. Eugenic Institute Fund are the last three words. Geonological is the first word. Geonological Eugenic Institute Fund. Hard pause. Eugenic Fund. Supporting research and education in what? Eugenics. Okay. What? Yeah, that was the reaction that this professor had. He raised concern with not only the university, he raised concern with other members of the faculty. It is, uh, you know, by research standards, a small fund. $2.4 million in the fund, offering an annual payout of about $70,000 in any given fiscal year to support research and education in policies, practices, and technologies that could, quote, affect the distribution of traits in the human race. That is eugenics. Um, Okay, he was shocked and dismayed. The university has, uh, you know, like, (laughs) come around Um, to recognize that, well, at least they shouldn't use the word publicly. 
else got the email? Why is this the first and only person whose eyebrows were raised? Who has applied for this money? Who has received this funding? Who has done research through the Eugenics Research Fund at UC Berkeley? Where is this research published? Why didn't the appearance of the word eugenics raise flags for everyone, every time? Do I sound a little exercised about this? Yes, I am. Why? Because I think it's really important to note that there are an awful lot of people with a progressive mindset who think there's nothing wrong with racism. Explicit, expressive, eugenics, racism. Affecting the distribution of traits in the human race is about as racist as it gets. And it's not hiding. It's in plain sight. UC Berkeley has had a fund to provide for research in eugenics. This is not about being paranoid. This is about being vigilant. For those of us who are pro-life, maybe it's time to go see what other kind of research funds there are at our public and private secular universities. Because if you don't value that every human being is created in the image of God, then there's nothing wrong with racism and there's nothing wrong with eugenics. Next up, I've got Dr. Brett Nix from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. We'll be right back. Doctor, my eyes have seen the years and the slow parade of fears. Joining me now, Dr. Brett Nix from the Christian Medical and Dental Association, CMDA.org. Brett, welcome back. Hey, good morning, Carmen. How are you today? I, well, I'm well, and I'm a little exercised. Uh, hey, I love first... it. I, I heard the lead-in. That was outstanding. It's about as good as going out and taking care of a bumper harvest, right? There you go. Oh, gosh, you saw my sweet potato post last night. Oh, my goodness. I didn't know that those were potatoes. <laughs> those things look like watermelons. So it's actually like the the favorite gardening day of the year for our kids, and it has been for a long time. So we have pictures going way back of them harvesting sweet potatoes um, because it it's there's there is if you've never um, harvested a sweet potato, then you don't really know how gratifying it is because it's just it's total surprise and delight. You have no idea what's under that mound. And then you get to it's just yeah, it's extraordinary. And they're weird looking and fun. And yeah. And we ate our last sweet potato from last year's harvest last night. Oh, my goodness. That's quite a yeah. harvest. So that's how before. long that uh, wheelbarrow of potatoes is going to last us. Okay. So wow. there you go. I digress. We digress. Um, we are, by the way, eating our very colorful, homegrown, uh, close-to-the-earth food, doctor. Just letting you know. Hey, I tell you, it gets no better than that. <laughs> okay. Talk with us about um, what's going on at Boston Children's Hospital. They are no longer performing two types of intersex surgery. I think we have to back up. We have to define intersex. We have to talk about the surgeries ordinarily performed in relationship to this, and then why Boston Children's Hospital has made this decision. Yeah, so this can be confusing for most. So keep in mind that, you know, when God creates us uh, and we go through the motion of being developed in our mother's womb, there's so many intricate pieces that go on in this process. And sometimes the processes by which things are developed may not develop fully or may not develop as we would anticipate seeing. And really what we're talking about here is more the visual 
process of the genitalia. The difference between a man and a woman, a boy and a girl, a child, as we see them. And so when a child is born, sometimes the genitalia may be, may be what we call ambiguous, uncertain. And so the term that many will use then is intersex. So you look at the baby and you're like, okay, is it a boy? Is it a girl? Sometimes the, the penis is not as well developed, or maybe the vulvar area of the perineum for the female is not, and so it's unclear. Now, keep in mind, there are other aspects of it. Sometimes the ovaries uh, are, are present, but the external portions may not actually look like a young female, or the testes have not descended. And so there's different processes in the entire intricacy of things in development that can slow down or pause. And so sometimes when that happens, <clears throat> they look at the child, they evaluate the child, and they say, hey, you know, genetically, this is a boy, or genetically, this is a girl. And so a surgery will be done to go ahead and uh, addre address the ambiguousness, if you will, of the surgical uh, visual process of the genitalia. And so, you know, in the article that we're talking about, Boston Children's is saying, hey, in these scenarios where it's unclear, we're just going to stop doing surgery right now and let time go forward and let the child or time decide. And so it's a bit of a step uh, in an unusual direction. Now, whether this is to, to claim that there is such a thing as um, a hermaphrodite, if you will, someone who is both male and female that is coexistent is difficult to say. But looking at this as it relates to it, it's a little bit unusual. And they're not the first hospital, but they're the second to step in and say, hey, we understand that this can be a challenge because maybe genetically we're making the wrong decision. And later on, that person will have to address that. Or maybe we're making the right decision, but many are protesting, saying you should not be making that decision based on genetics alone. So to be clear, uh, a person is either genetically XX or XY. Absolutely. What is ambiguous is the development of uh, the externals or sometimes the internals. That's correct. And sometimes what you will find is exactly what you state. Genetically, you can pull your genes out and you can say, okay, this is a boy, this is a girl. Sometimes we have some genetic anomalies, which lead into some of the different types of trisomies and things like that that we will see. And that's a completely different issue altogether, although it gets into your uh, genomics and genetics uh, discussion from the previous uh, uh, minutes before we started. But in this circumstance, sometimes the external genitalia is influenced by hormones in mother that she may be taking or may have. There's so many different things that can influence these things. But what we're doing now is we're moving away from what the gene that God created us to be, the genome that we have, into something that is now visually perhaps different and or in the process of changing and making a determination on that. All right, I'm talking with Dr. Brett Nix from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. We're going to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to pivot subject matter. There is um, a significant rise in colorectal cancer in young adults, and we want to talk about that. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continue my conversation with Dr. Brett Nix from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. You can find them at cmda.org. Um, Brett, let's talk about the rise in colorectal cancer in young adults. You know, it's interesting. I think this was brought to light uh, when you look at the news around Chadwick Bozeman at 43 um, who died. And, you know, it brought to, to light the simple fact that, you know, typically we think of colorectal cancer as a cancer of those over 65. And the recent history shows that actually it's continued to decline in that aspect. 
uh, 3% between 2008 and 2017 for those over 65. But those under 50, we've seen a slight increase of 1.3%. And yes, we typically think of it as a disease of older folks. And whether there's aspects of lifestyle trends, such as obesity uh, and issues of uh, decreased activity, dietary changes, all of these things are probably there. And there likely are going to be some genetic associated features as well. You know, we, to be honest with you, if you look at all the data, we're really not sure what the driver is in this younger population as to why we're seeing it more frequently. Uh, but obviously, those who have family histories of colorectal cancer are those that are going to be at risk at younger ages. And those as well that have uh, perhaps less than ideal dietary habits, low fiber probably specifically is the main driver. Uh, perhaps those that have a high uh, carbohydrate, high sugar base uh, diet as well. And so it's interesting we're seeing this, and I'll be honest with you, I think that the data will show out itself over time, but we continue to see an increase in the under 50 age. Yeah, because once you're 50, your doctor tells you to go get something that's, yeah, scary to consider, but uh, having experienced it, ultimately not that scary. No, you, you know, that's all about... I'm saying about that. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting because here's <laughs> one of the most important things to watch for, regardless of your age. If all of a sudden when you're using the bathroom and when you're done, you either notice a little bit of blood in the toilet, not from a hemorrhoid or otherwise, or you notice it on your toilet paper, the typical things we call it, you know, fecal blood or fecal occult blood specimen, that little bit of blood sometimes can indicate that maybe you have a polyp, maybe you have something else that's going on. And that's a simple, simple thing to be mindful of that you need to bring forward to your doctor regardless of your age. All right. That's awesome. Talk with us about the Geneva Consensus Declaration. That sounds like a big, fancy thing, and people can find it at cmda.org. Absolutely. So what's fascinating about this, the Geneva uh, Consensus Declaration, it was supposed to have occurred when the World Health Assembly was meeting in Geneva this year, but because of COVID, it didn't. And so it still kind of kept the same name. What this is is a document signed by over 32 different countries covering about 1.6 billion people around the world. And this declaration strengthens the coalition to achieve four things. The first is better health for women. The second, preservation of human life. The third, strengthening family as a foundational unit of society. And the last is protecting every nation's national sovereignty in, around these areas. What that specifically means is each country has the ability to define and decide what these things mean for their people not to necessarily be heavily influenced by those around them that may share a different perspective or a different approach. And a lot of this has to do with faith-based perspectives of what does it mean to protect a woman? What does it mean to preserve life? It also it looks at issues around resources. What resources do you have to enhance these types of things and to allow different countries to make their own laws regarding things related to abortion uh, and uh, address the issues that women have within their own countries? Which are significant, right? I mean, Which are I think absolutely that, significant. Yeah, when we start talking about what is happening um, in relationship to women in healthcare around the world, um, what happens here in the United States is it's not unique, but it is an outlier in terms of the access that most women around the globe have. Um, women and girls are at great risk. This is there's just so much in here that is um, so important. Uh, the four pillars of the Geneva Consensus Declaration, Improving Women's Health, Preserving Human Life, Strengthening the Family, and Protecting National Sovereignty provide a noble framework for consensus global engagement on women's health issues. It's an excellent, um, that's a quote from uh, Dr. 
Jeffrey Barrows, um, who we talk to from time to time. He is a senior vice president of bioethics and public policy at CMDA. And um, there's just a lot going on in this area that uh, folks need to understand and where they can advocate. And all of that is provided uh, for you if you go check it out at cmda.org. What you're looking for is the Geneva Consensus Declaration. Um, Brett, we got a couple of minutes left. Let's talk about uh, what uh, my heading on my piece of paper says, vaccine stuff. (laughs) Yeah, so it's fascinating. Yesterday uh, at our national organization, Dr. Fauci presented some information related to where the vaccines are currently located in, in process. And What's fascinating right now is we have five that are in phase two and three trials, and he attested yesterday that he believes by the third week of November, uh, the first one will be uh, released as far as its endpoint data. And if you look at the preliminary data on many of them, uh, it's very, very positive in the over 65 group as far as developing the typical immune response that you would expect for a vaccine. Uh, There are a couple others that are in the younger population also showing very strong responses. And so... In looking at what we knew as of yesterday, uh, probably watch for the third week of November for the first announcements and then several to follow within the coming weeks. So really mid, late November into early December, you're probably going to see two and or three uh, announcements related to several different opportunities. And again, with Operation Warp Speed and the other things that are in process, the initial process then is to roll these out to the most vulnerable populations and those that are in the trenches in healthcare to go ahead and initiate that process and then a very, very large ramp up of process downstream. Now, the question will come is in time, will there be a better option for certain age groups, for certain ones at risk? We will find that out as the uh, data comes out because you may have three or four different options between now and January, uh, maybe into the early portion of the year, depending on where you fall in the at-risk category. And so at that point in time, we may actually have not just one choice, but multiple choices based on what your risk profile will be. All right. That's cool. Um, All right. I want to um, let you uh, talk briefly about, because I just saw it on your website, um, the Global Missions Health Conference. Okay. That sounds really cool. And it's coming up pretty soon and it's in Louisville, Kentucky. It is. This is an annual conference through CMDA that really just brings people who serve anywhere in the world. Uh, And this could be people from the U.S. serving globally. This could be people that are in global environments serving, but serving with a cause that understands that the most important things that we can do every single day is, number one, we love our God. Number two, we love people. And in doing so, we serve them. And if you have a servant's heart, it's the ability to come together to be fostered, to be filled, and to be to be uh, embraced uh, for the servant mindset that you have. And sometimes serving may mean that you are someone who uh, is a sender. You are somebody who, you know, I say, I can't be on the mission field, but I'm going to support people on missions. Or you are the person on the field who recognize the value of being present and been called to do so, uh, but recognize that, especially as we have all seen here, even in the U.S. with COVID and isolation, imagine taking that to the ex- degree in being in a foreign country, limited contact, limited exposures, and now limited uh, capacity to have fellowship with others. Uh, You can imagine the need and the desire uh, to be filled and to be uh, supported in that perspective. And so this looks at a conference not just around uh, the ability to to serve better, but also looks at the uh, ways to address the medical challenges you have on a global front when your resources are limited, when you're practicing in an austere environment, and when culturally you are, you are trying to navigate in a mindset that uh, has to be filled by God, not by your own mind. All right. So much great stuff. Um, go check it out, cmda.org. If you have um, somebody who is preparing 
to go into um, health care, uh, Christian health care students. I really encourage them to check out Remedy 2021 happening in January. Maybe um, maybe that is something that you'd like to sponsor somebody for for Christmas as a Christmas gift to an aspiring physician or a aspiring dentist or um, someone else in healthcare. Maybe there's somebody in nursing school right now. We really do want to impact the next generation um, of of Christians who are going into healthcare and invite them into uh, understanding that it's a mission and it's not just uh, it's not just medicine. Hey, Dr. Brett Nix, thank you as always so much for joining us. Hey, Carmen, my pleasure, and I hope the crops continue to grow. (laughs) Thanks, man. We'll be right back. I want you to just pause and think for the moment about the word redeemed or redeeming. If something can be redeemed, then it is not um, hopelessly lost. It is not irrevocably uh, bad. So when you read the book title, Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church, I want you to recognize that power must not always and in every form be bad if it can be redeemed. But we do recognize that, like all things that are God-given to be good, it can be perverted and used for evil. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about abuse in the church. We're going to talk about how we understand authority, and we're going to talk about redeeming power with Diane Langberg. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is Max Lucado. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. No one else saw him. The disciples saw only a theological case study. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They didn't see a human being. They saw a topic of discussion. Jesus, by contrast, saw a man who was blind from birth. A man who had never seen a sunrise, who couldn't distinguish purple from pink. He dwelled in a dark world. Others had reason to hope. He had reason to despair. But then Jesus saw him, and he sees you. The first lesson of this miracle is a welcome one. You and I aren't invisible. We aren't overlooked. Jesus spots us on the side of the road, and he makes the first move. Remember, my friend, you are never alone. This is Max Locato. Joining me now, Dr. Diane Landberg. We have had uh, Diane on before to talk about this subject matter. Um, Today she joins us to talk about her new book, Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church. Diane um, is an internationally recognized psychologist. She's a counselor. She speaks regularly on abuse and trauma all over the world. Um, In fact, she is speaking tonight at a Caring for Victims of Race-Based Trauma uh, in the Twin Cities at a City Joy event. If you want to check that out, just go to CityJoy.org. Um, Diane, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. It's great to be here. Um, you and I never get to talk about, like, you know, puppies and flowers. And so uh, let me just <laughs> like, acknowledge acknowledge that at the outset. We are, we're having hard conversations about the hard realities um, that so many people experience. And sadly, they are experiencing... Um, this abuse in the context and in the con- in the life of the church. 
So um, I just recognize that when we wade into this territory, there are people listening um, who have never told anyone. And uh, and so I just want to say to you, if that's you and um, you're ready to talk to somebody, um, we want to be safe people to talk to. And so you can always email me, Carmen at MyFaithRadio.com. We will make sure you get directly connected with somebody um, that you can talk with about your own experience of abuse in the life of the church. Um, Diane, talk about uh, if power—the title of the book is Redeeming Power, which makes me pause, because if it can be redeemed, then it must not be inherently bad. So can you sort of introduce us to power and authority um, in a way that is righteous and right? Yes, it's interesting how many people have that struggle because it's become such a negative word because of the abuses, I'm sure, down through the centuries. But the fact is, if we go back to the beginning, um, I, I think that power is part of the image of God in human beings. I mean, he is the God of all power. He is also all good. So those two things can reside together eternally. And Part of what he did when he created us in his image was give us the ability to impact or influence or change things in his world. And when he created Adam and Eve, he said to them, basically, go and rule and subdue my my earth. Those are power words. He notably did not tell them to rule and subdue one another. And a part of what has happened is, of course, that we have taken the power that we have that was a gift of God in order for his world to flourish and be cared for by us. And we have used that power to feed ourselves and thereby destroyed each other. So then we pivot, I think, to that conversation. Um, There is an appropriate role for power and authority. They are God-given. They do have an appropriate expression in human relationships and institutions. But like everything else that is given to us by God, we have found a way to pervert it um, and to use it. And so let's talk about the church, which is supposed to be a sanctuary for the vulnerable. Mm. Um, You describe it as having become a sanctuary for the powerful. Can you talk about that? Yes, I think that, uh, again, we start with human beings who are seeking power in twisted and wrong ways to feed themselves. And unfortunately, that has over the centuries included uh, people seeking it in God's name and in God's house. And so it's often very cloaked in language that is spiritual and confuses people or certainly misleads them. But then power can be used to gain uh, financially in the church. Power can be used to feed an ego uh, that is struggling and feeling less than. Power can be used to feed a sex drive. It can be used to uh, take someone who feels little and make them feel big. And all of those things can easily happen using God's name and saying that the bigger we get or the more money we have are proof of God's blessing all the while, uh, those are the fruit of an abuse of power that does not honor him at all. I'm talking with Dr. Diane Langberg. We are talking about her new book, Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church. 
Um, Diane, who needs this? Everybody. <laughs> Everybody. You, you, right. Talk about the scope of this, because I think most people um, are not aware at the scope of abuse in the church, throughout the church, at various levels. Um, and we're not just talking here about, you know, a person in a senior pastor role. So um, help us understand the scope and the breadth of this uh, issue in our culture. Well, we, I think we have to start with the fact that all human beings are fallen, in case we haven't noticed that, and um, <laughs> that in that fallenness is part of what is included in that is uh, the abuse of power. Parents abuse power. Uh, teachers abuse power, pastors abuse power. I mean, you, you know, everybody abuses power. And there are many, many ways that, uh, kinds of power in many ways that we can do that. And so it is rife among humanity and it has not uh, exempted the church or the Christian world. Um, if you think about it, it's certainly easier for people, I think, to picture it in somebody who they see as powerful. So if you took a senior pastor in a large church, who has a tremendous verbal ability, theological knowledge, a high position, um, it, things like that are avenues where power is expressed. And so we see it and we see growth in external ways and we assume goodness. Um, but, but we also have to understand that we who are not in those positions have power. We can speak truth about what we're seeing, or we can just, you know, drink at the trough and enjoy the rewards and, and not speak truth. Or we can experience the abuse of that power because we've been a victim of it, either in verbal ways, in sexual ways. Um, there are many, many victims in the pews who have been victimized by Christians in power. The other aspect that we have to look at as individuals is that power can also be the chosen absence of it. That's what a cover-up is. <laughs> we, we, we know something, we know it is wrong, and we do nothing. And so we have used our power by making ourselves absent from that difficulty. And we allow the abuse of power to go on. And many victims have experienced not only abuse by a particular person, but then the absence of care, which is the refusal to use one's power in helping uh, the wounded sheep. Okay, so this is the, um, you know, this is sort of at the church level of see something, say something. Um, we, we do recognize it when we see it and when we hear it, um, and we are too often silent in the face of it. Um, it is a shared responsibility, which is why everybody uh, needs to be equipped. The book is Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church. Diane Langberg is the author. She's also my guest. She and I will be right back. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Diane Langberg. We're talking about her book, Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church. Um, Diane, uh, it occurs to me that churches have been, for a very long period of time, sort of a place of easy pickings. Um, we have not 
guarded the door. We have not um, evaluated everyone who wants to spend time with children. We have not um, fiercely held our pastors accountable. Um, And so can you talk about the role of the body of believers? Um, This is a conversation that must be had, obviously, at the highest levels in our congregations, but there's a responsibility that we all bear. Yes, there is. Uh, The the body of Christ is not just its leaders. The body of Christ is everyone who knows him. And we all have responsibility for um, looking like him. I think one of the things we have to, and I talk about this at length in the book, what we have to look at is our own capacity for deception. Hmm. And how we talk ourselves out of things and into things, because they're often things that we long for. And one of the things we long for is safety in the house of God. And there's nothing wrong with that longing, but that longing can easily lead us to deceive ourselves into thinking that it's safe, even though the house of God happens to be full of sinners, because there's no other kind of human around thinking that people are what they look like on the outside, though God has made very clear that is not the case. But we do things with our own thoughts and responses in order to fulfill that longing. So if a child comes forward, for example, and says, so-and-so did such-and-such to me, we say that can't be true. Number one, I know this person, which we don't. And that person would never do such a thing, which we cannot promise. And and so we don't listen to the child. And we do that because we don't want it to be true when we find ways to tell ourselves that it isn't. So everyone is responsible before God. He's the God of truth and light. And those things often feel, I find, to Christians to contradict love as if somehow they can't all reside together. So if you bring the truth to the light, you're not loving somebody, which is false. Totally false. You're not loving them if you hide the truth. Well, and you're also, you're not, you're not only not loving the abuser, you're most certainly not loving the victim. You're not loving the abuser. You're not loving the victim. You're not loving the whole body and you're not loving God. Mm. So we, he calls us to truth, and truth is a hard road for humans, if we're honest about it, if we tell the truth about it. <laughs> we prefer our illusions and deceptions. Again, that's what got us in this mess, were mm-hmm. illusions and deceptions. Um, I think that, you know, when, when something, when one of these truths uh, is unveiled, revealed, becomes known in the life of, uh, of a congregation. There's a response um, from other Christians in the community and other churches in the community that continues to surprise me. <laughs> you know, everybody is, everybody is shocked. Um, everybody is horrified. And everybody immediately uh, protects their own reputation and fellowship by suggesting that nothing like that would ever happen here. We don't have those kinds of people in this house. And as you have just walked through and demonstrated, that's just not true. No, it's not. 
So this preference for our own uh, delusions or uh, our own illusions that have now become delusions, it's like a shared it's like a shared delusion at this point, um, uh, is is one of the major stumbling blocks to our making progress in the direction of redeeming power and redeeming um, authority in the life of the church. Maybe talk about um, one one practical thing that anybody listening right now, one practical thing that um, that we could do or one practical conversation we need to have that moves us in the direction of seeing, hearing, and helping victims of abuse? Well, one practical thing would be anybody who's ever hinted to you that something inappropriate or abusive happened to them in their lives, whether it was in the church or anywhere else, and you did not have the conversation, you did not sit with them, you did not listen, you did not want to enter in, go back and say you're sorry and be willing to enter in. A long, long time ago, I sat across from a young uh, therapist who was just encountering cases that were bringing uh, abuse stories uh, largely from the Christian world. And she she said to me, I don't want to do this work. I do not want to enter the story these people are asking me to enter in because I do not want it to be true. Now, that was a pretty upfront statement, but many of us live that way without articulating that. And so somebody will come forward and even hint at something and we'll give them a Bible verse. Or we'll tell them we'll pray for them, which those are not necessarily bad or wrong things to do, but oftentimes we use them to shut it up. I fixed it. I've given you the right answer. I don't want to hear about it. And I don't want to hear about it because if I listen to your story, it will disrupt my world. And I can tell you, yes, it will. But your world should be disrupted. God's world is disrupted every time someone is abused. Yeah, the agency of grace component of who we're called to be as ambassadors of Jesus Christ makes it impossible for me to live in peace if another person is living as a as a as a victim, um, particularly as a victim of abuse uh, from the very body of people who are supposed to be um, bringers of peace, sowers of peace. Um, and so, Diane, as always, uh, thank you. Um, thank you for being willing to um, help us be and see in the darkness, um, like, right, because we have to live in the midst of, of some darkness, but we do so as people of light. So the book is Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church. Diane Langberg is the author. Diane, thank you for what you do every day. Thank you for what you're going to do tonight at the City Joy event. Um, you guys can check that out uh, and log on at City Joy. Dot .org caring for victims of race based trauma an event taking place tonight and you it's a webcast so you're still time for you to participate. I'm Diane Langberg. Thank you so much for joining us on Mornings with Carmen. You're welcome Carmen. It was a privilege. Likewise. We'll be right back. All right, we have uh, covered a range on the waterfront of topics today, all of which I hope lead you to some Prayer leads you to some reconsideration of things you have thought, 
lead you to scripture, lead you into conversation with other Christians, and lead you into the world as an agent of God's grace and mercy to people who are genuinely living in darkness, living in fear, living not only as sinners, but subject to the sin of others. This is the day the Lord has made. Um, He is worthy to be praised in the midst of it, and he is also worthy to be served in the midst of it. And so let us go forth today as people who are armed with the very word of God, filled with the very spirit of God, called and equipped to be the very ambassadors of the king and the kingdom in the midst of the world that God so loves. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.